KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. San Diego congressmen talk about their experience at today's presidential inauguration. At this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The local chapter of Vice President Kamala Harris's sorority celebrates a historic moment. I, Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against and a look at vaccine reactions, plus a vocal critic talks about problems in Tijuana. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. There were no crowds of people on the mall, no outgoing president on stage, and hardly a face without a mask on. But despite the unusual atmosphere, the transfer of power took place in Washington. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris took the oaths of office with the traditional words and most of the traditional pomp and circumstance. One of the San Diegans who was able to witness today's extraordinary inauguration is San Diego Democratic Congressman Scott Peters. Congressman Peters, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Thanks for having me. Big day. I, I'd like to start with an excerpt from President Biden's speech this morning. I know speaking of unity can sound to some like a foolish fantasy these days. I know the forces that divide us are deep and they are real. But I also know they are not new. Our history has been a constant struggle between the American ideal that we're all are created equal and the harsh, ugly reality that racism, nativism, fear, demonization have long torn us apart. The battle is perennial and victory is never assured. Through Civil War, the Great Depression, World War, 9-11, through struggle, sacrifice, and setbacks, our better angels have always prevailed. In each of these moments, enough of us, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. And we can do that now. History, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. And Congressman Peters, I'd like to get your response to that part of the president's remarks today on unity. Boy, it's so welcome. I must say, <laughs> I think uh, the greatest threat to this country has been the division among us. The fact that we think of each other as our enemies instead of um, our fellow citizens. So I think that uh, President Biden set exactly the right tone. And uh, I think it inspired a lot of us to really look inside of our hearts and figure out how we can 
uh, ourselves tried to bridge these gaps, and maybe he's, he gave that same message to Americans all over the country. And former President Donald Trump did not attend the ceremony today. What do you think is the significance of that in relation to the prospect of unity and bipartisanship moving forward? Well, uh, President Trump was uh, never one for unity. He was really, um, I mean, frankly, I thought thought more about himself than about the country, and saw. Um, you know, saw saw his um, f- found enemies wherever he could, and I think that the the thing that Joe Biden said today was, "Look, you know, we can we can disagree. It doesn't mean we're disloyal, um, and that we we need to respect each other. We need to hear each other." Um, that's not what President Trump was all about, but fortunately, that's what President Biden is about, and I think gives us a chance to really start healing and restoring American greatness again. Today was a highly unusual inauguration. No massive crowds, uh, but instead 400,000 flags representing the people lost to COVID-19 in the last year. What can you tell us about how that affected the ceremony today? Well, mostly driven by COVID. Uh, There weren't many people there. So uh, well before um, the additional security concerns that were prompted by the events of two weeks ago, um, where I usually had 60 tickets to give out to people, I had one ticket. Um, and because they wanted to space everyone out. And so indeed, uh, the, the crowd was much smaller. It was a bit, it was bittersweet um, in that um, it's, it's wonderful to participate in this peaceful transfer of power. And it, but it was sad that uh, Americans couldn't enjoy it in the traditional way. A lot of Americans couldn't be there in person. Um, but again, I think we're going to get through this pandemic. Um, we're going to deal with these security concerns. And um, I feel that we're, on a great trajectory today. I just am so encouraged by how it went today and um, by the tone and the mood. Uh, And I think um, got the same message from Democrats and Republicans uh, after the ceremony today. You know, President Biden is taking on an America that's in crisis. What do you see as the biggest priority and what are you most hopeful for? We have to deal with this pandemic. Um, I don't think it's a complicated issue, but it's an issue that requires some determination and some effort. Uh, I think we'll do that. I think that will help us uh, with the economic recovery. Uh, and then I think we've got to restore, <laughs> we've got to restore our credibility uh, internationally. Amer- America needs to be engaged and we need to be leading the world and we need to be a beacon ag- again, as I think the president said. Um, and we've got a lot of complicated issues ahead of us that need bipartisan support from climate change to national security and a whole host of things. So um But I think the pandemic uh, will take center stage. Um, And I'm encouraged about the the promise to help states and locals get out the vaccine. I think that's that's the biggest challenge right now. I've been speaking to San Diego Congressman Scott Peters. Congressman Peters, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's a great day. Thank you. And also fresh from the Biden-Harris inauguration ceremony, San Diego Congressman Mike Levin joins us now. Congressman Levin, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Now, watching on TV, it looked like a smaller than usual, but still significant ceremony. What was it like to be there? Well, it was an extraordinary honor, and it was a a historic morning, uh, such a great American tradition, a peaceful transfer of power to a new president, new vice president. Uh, And I'm uh, grateful that uh, we were able to have a secure ceremony, particularly after the horror, uh, the violence from two weeks ago. Uh, My gratitude is to all of the National Guard, all the law enforcement, the U.S. Capitol Police, and everybody that kept us safe and sound 
during the ceremony this morning. And uh, I'm also happy to be back in a warm uh, office because it was cold out there, Maureen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something we don't usually experience uh, watching here in San Diego. I want to I want to follow up though on the fact that it was only two weeks ago that that same place, U.S. Capitol's West Front, was overrun with rioters, and of course today it was the setting for the inauguration. Was that on your mind and just about everyone's mind in the audience today? Well, it certainly was on my mind, and uh, what a. Uh, crazy historic three weeks. It's been three Wednesdays in January of 21 that I'll never forget uh, that I think have changed America forever. Uh, first with the senseless violence, the attack from domestic terrorists uh, on our capital. Second, uh, one Wednesday later, trying to hold the president to account uh, for what transpired. And then of course, uh, this morning, the peaceful transition to the 46th president Joe Biden, uh, our democracy has prevailed. Uh, we'll continue to uh, advance good public policy for our constituents, uh, consistent with our values. And I'm really excited to get work with the, get to work with this new uh, administration. Both uh, Joe Biden and California's own Kamala Harris. I think they are competent. Uh, they are leaders who are going to serve all Americans with dignity and honor and respect, uh, as uh, the president said. Whether you were uh, a supporter of his or not, he is a president for all Americans. And I think at a time where we are very divided, where we need to unite, we need to heal, uh, and we're trying to recover, obviously, from a pandemic that has taken more than 400,000 lives tragically across this country, we desperately need competent, stable leadership. And I think that's what Joe Biden and the Biden administration will bring. What did you take from the president's inauguration speech? Well, I think uh, the theme was obviously unity, but uh, he spoke with a humility and a decency uh, that I think uh, is just a breath of fresh air, uh, talking about uh, hope over fear and truth over lies and, and the need to get back to uh, really uh, uh, coming together, using politics for more than just uh, division, but rather for uh, solving big problems. And, and let's face it, we face some huge problems right now in the United States. Uh, as I turned around and, and saw the National Mall, which normally would have hundreds of thousands of people uh, watching the inauguration, uh, instead there were a couple hundred thousand flags. And of course, uh, all of that to commemorate uh, the lives lost due to COVID-19. It was just a reminder of the challenges that we're facing and, and even looking around and seeing uh, so much fewer uh, people uh, than, than under a normal circumstance where we were all socially distanced, wearing masks, uh, trying to keep each other safe. Uh, all of that was just a reminder of the stark challenges that we're facing uh, during this stark winter. And as we know from uh, the recent weeks of uh, trying to get uh, vaccines distributed and trying to ensure uh, that uh, we can safely reopen and uh, get through the worst of the pandemic. Uh, we still have a great deal of work that has to be done. And uh, I am uh, very eager to, to get to work with the new administration uh, and to continue many of the great things we, we have done in the past, uh, but to really uh, crush this pandemic, uh, get our economy back up and running again, and, and then doing all we can to advance the interests of our district and our region. 
You know, the call for unity in President Biden's speech is a call that could be needed even in Congress. We've heard that some members of Congress are concerned about the intentions of other members and their possible role in the insurrection. What's your feeling on that? Well, look, uh, we have read the reports that at least a few of the members were either directly or indirectly involved in uh, perhaps planning the the rally that that led to the insurrection. Uh, we know that at least the, the uh, investigation is ongoing of uh, whether one or more members actually allowed uh, guests into the Capitol uh, in what is alleged and what has been called a, a reconnaissance uh, sort of a visit. Uh, we're not supposed to have visitors right now, Marine, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So all that's deeply problematic. Uh, seeing uh, several of my colleagues unwilling to uh, even go through a magnetometer uh, the other evening as uh, we were going to the House floor, uh, that was uh, uh, disturbing as well. So uh, I think it's critically important uh, that we try to seek out uh, those on the other side of the aisle uh, that uh, want to work with us in good faith. And, and the good news is that I've got many friends across the aisle uh, with whom I've worked on a variety of issues, whether it be on veterans or environmental issues or, or otherwise. Uh, we need to continue to build those relationships because uh, my experience has been there are many excellent members on uh, the other side of the aisle. I, I want to work with them and and I'm willing to work with anybody, Marine, that is willing to work with me to advance the interests of our district and our region. And Congressman Levin, how will you be spending the rest of this big day? Well, uh, we're going to be doing uh, a couple of virtual uh, inauguration ceremonies. I know there's one this evening that I'm looking forward to. Of course, normally this would be a busy day uh, that we'd, we'd be spending probably going to all sorts of interesting parties and events. None of that is happening in person. Uh, but uh, we are doing some virtual events. And of course, given that it's a stay-at-home order, uh, it's disappointing that uh, you know my wife is not here with me. I, I very much miss her and uh, missed her being there with me this morning, but we decided it best for her to stay at home during the, the, uh, the stay-at-home order. Uh, so I do hope that someday we'll come, Marine, where my wife can accompany me uh, to an inauguration, but uh, this morning we just felt it better safe than sorry. Well, I'm glad you decided to spend some time with us anyway. I've been speaking with San Diego Congressman Mike Levin. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. Good to be with you. The presidency of Donald Trump ended at 9 a.m. today. It marked the end of bitter political and legal warfare between California and the Trump administration over so many things, health care, the environment, immigration, but more fundamentally, what kind of country America should be. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer examines how things might change for California under the Biden-Harris administration. You might say the relationship was poisoned right from the start. They don't treat their people as well as they treat illegal immigrants. So at what point does it stop? It's crazy what they're doing. Demonizing immigrants, dismissing climate change as a hoax, calling our election rigged. Like California, the same person votes many times. You probably heard about that. They always like to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Not a conspiracy theory, folks. It all ends today. It feels like waking up from a nightmare, and not just the nightmare being over, but being in a beautiful dream. That's Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. He remembers how the Obama-Biden administration worked with cities. All the time they're reaching out. What's working in L.A.? What's working in California? How can we amplify that? How can we scale that up? Garcetti is looking forward to an administration that isn't constantly at war with the state. 
where we're told that we're, you know, this evil outlier state. What we have now are people who know us. Jerry Brown was governor for six of Barack Obama's eight years as president before Trump took over in 2017. He says while there is a big difference. It's not an open sesame to whatever you want. However, having a, a line of communication, it's better to have friends than enemies. In particular, Brown says it will make a huge difference having Biden embrace what California is doing on the environment, rather than fighting it in the courts. He's also hoping California will finally get federal support for one of his priorities, high-speed rail. To uh, get the high-speed rail uh, from Fresno, from Merced, and right up the uh, line there to San Francisco. Uh, That's a real possibility. Brown, like Gavin Newsom after him, had to perform a political dance, criticizing Trump at times while also making sure the state got federal relief for wildfires and the pandemic. Brown says while California will benefit from Trump's departure, there will be a downside for Newsom, potentially amplifying his critics. For a governor, especially in a difficult period, it's very handy to have someone, uh, what I would call a bigger boogeyman, uh, with him not there, uh, they may, there may tend to be uh, more focus on the governor. One big advantage for Newsom in California is having Kamala Harris as vice president. He was mayor of San Francisco when she was district attorney. The city's current mayor, London Breed, is especially looking forward to more direction on the pandemic. We're going to have more support from the federal government. The Biden administration has already made clear what their plans are for expanding the fight against COVID. After Bill Clinton, George W. Bush was president for the last years of Gray Davis's governorship. Davis says while Bush wasn't hostile to California the way Trump is, he wasn't particularly helpful either. The short of it is it's far better to have a president that shares your belief system uh, than one who opposes it. Davis thinks Biden will adopt many of California's policies and nationalize them. I think California is going to have more influence than it ever had before. Now, are they going to follow us in every issue? No, but at least they'll give us a hearing. But it's not going to solve all of California's problems either. That was KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Today marked a historic moment held dear by many, especially women, across the country as the nation's first black and South Asian woman to hold the office of vice president was sworn in. Here's a clip of the moment Judge Sonia Sotomayor swore in Vice President Kamala Harris during inauguration. Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That moment you just heard is also being celebrated and honored by Vice President Harris's sorority sisters across the country. Alpha Kappa Alpha is the nation's oldest black sorority. It was founded on the campus of Howard University, where not only Vice President Harris crossed, but also our next guest. Joining us now is Diane Joyner, president of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, Epsilon Psi Omega, which is San Diego's chapter. Diane, welcome. 
Thank you. I'm glad to be here and thank you for having me. So I have to ask, what was your reaction this morning as you watched Kamala Harris being sworn in? I was so excited. I was proud, exuberance everywhere. It's just a great moment for my sorority sisters, for me, for girls and women all over the country, especially African-American females. And as you mentioned, you know, it is a a watershed moment for the nation's oldest black sorority. Um, What does it mean to you to see the first woman, the first black woman, the first South Asian woman, so many firsts, uh, to hold the position of vice president of the United States? It is a major accomplishment. First of all, traditionally, black women have a lower point in the um, society for as men are concerned. So uh, we can we can rise, but we get to a certain point and then it's just stopped. Like we reach the glass, but we can't get through it. So now she has broken that glass ceiling and we are just all proud. Today, not just AKAs, but many people are celebrating Vice President Harris by wearing pearls and chucks. Are you wearing yours today? And, and what can you tell me about the significance of the pearls? I am wearing my pearls. I have my black Converse sneakers on. The significance of the pearls is that it represents the 20, it represents our founders, basically. So when we talk about the founders, we always talk about the 20 pearls. The sorority has declared January 20th Kamala Harris Day to honor such a historic moment. Uh, The moment really speaks to the mission of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Can you tell me about that? The mission is comprised of five basic tenets, to cultivate and encourage high scholastic and ethical standards, to promote unity and friendship among college women, to study and help alleviate problems concerning girls and women in order to improve their social stature, to maintain a progressive interest in college life, and to be of service to all mankind. What do you think that this moment will mean for San Diego's chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha? As far as our chapter goes, we're just one of many, of course. We have an interest form on our website, and it seems like this this year especially, more people are are filling it in and calling us and just want to know all about AKA. And I have to mention again that you also graduated from Howard University. So how proud are you to be an AKA and a Howard Bison today? I am uh, triply proud because, um, you know, first of all, Howard is known all over the world. And when we see somebody who graduated from Howard, um, we have this little saying of H-U, you know, So I'm proud that she is an alum and I'm proud because she is my sorority sister. So it's it's doubly important to me. Wonderful. I have been speaking with Diane Joyner, president of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, Epsilon Psi Omega Chapter here in San Diego. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
San Diego joined a nationwide tribute last night to the victims of COVID-19 by illuminating buildings in Balboa Park. President Joe Biden headed the nation's tribute at a ceremony in Washington, D.C., honoring the more than 400,000 Americans who've lost their lives to the virus. The new administration has put the COVID vaccination program at the top of its priority list. But here in California, the effort hit a glitch this week with news that the state suspended the use of a batch of Moderna vaccine. Several people who received vaccinations from that batch experienced what's being called higher-than-usual allergic reactions. Joining me is James Paulson, professor and chair of the Department of Molecular Medicine at the Scripps Research Institute. And welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much, Maureen. Ten or so people who got vaccinated at Petco Park experienced these allergic reactions. Can you explain just what those reactions were? Well, yes. I mean, uh, allergic reactions in general are are pre-existing conditions. So someone has been exposed to um, something, you know, bee sting, peanut allergy. Uh, Everyone's familiar with, with allergies in general, pollen. Uh, and if you've been exposed and you and you are allergic, you produce a, you produce a, a your immune system produces an antibody that um, that causes allergies. Then then they're just sitting there waiting <laughs> for the next exposure, and uh, the immune system reacts quite vigorously to produce what's called anaphylaxis, which is a, a severe shock uh, to the body. Is is that possibly deadly? A reaction to a vaccine like that. It can be, but it's also very preventable under medical care. Uh, many people are also familiar with, um, if you are very allergic, like to peanut allergies, especially parents with uh, children that have peanut allergies, they have an EpiPen. It's an epinephrine pen. And when the reaction starts, a quick administration of that, um, the EpiPen generally takes care of it. And, uh, and you know, medical teams uh, who are present at these vaccination sites, by the way, uh, are, are there prepared to, to do that and other things to make sure that these severe reactions don't end up in a, in a bad way. Are you aware of what ingredients in the Moderna vaccine could have triggered such a reaction? Well, uh, you know, we could we could be surprised. There could be something that that nobody's anticipating. But the, the most likely ingredients uh, that I've seen are polyethylene glycol, which is used in manufacturing processes. And I've also heard mention of polysorbate. Uh, polyethylene glycol in particular is used in other medicines. And some people become allergic uh, become, uh, to, the, uh, to these materials that aren't present in, in, in most uh, common day life. Um, so uh, it's possible that the, pe- the, the people that, that were um, impacted and had these severe reactions had previous exposure. And as a result, um, uh, aren't, you know, experienced the same thing with this particular batch of, of Moderna vaccine. How common is it for people to have allergic reactions to vaccines? Oh, it's, it's very rare. So this is a common uh, problem for all vaccines. Uh, for anyone that's had an influenza vaccine, you, you, you will recall that you, get, you have to fill out a questionnaire. 
asking if you have allergies to eggs in particular, because many influenza vaccines are produced in eggs and there's some carryover of those allergens into the vaccine. So this is not a new problem at all. And, um, and, and it's very rare because the ingredients in, in the uh, vaccines uh, produce these allergies very, very uncommonly. So it was, uh, I think, surprising and raised the red flag when, when more than one <laughs> person in a day uh, or more than one or two in a day experienced some negative reaction. And this is a new kind of vaccine. It's not the egg-based flu vaccine that we're used to, is it? Yes, it's not a egg-based at all. So it's not the same allergy. It would be a different allergy for components that were carried over in the manufacturing process for this particular uh, Moderna vaccine. And why did the state decide to take that entire batch of Moderna out of circulation? Well, I think it was just uh, an abundance of caution, uh, the, the term that was used. We've heard that term used a lot these days, but, <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's for that reason. Um, now Moderna and the FDA and the CDC are investigating that batch to see if perhaps some of the suspected allergic compounds uh, were in higher quantity, for example, or if they could detect other things that, that uh, weren't anticipated to be in that batch or other batches. Um, you know, I, I personally think that we'll learn a lot more by uh, asking the patients what their previous exposures have been. And if there's anything in common uh, between the patients that would help narrow down what could be the problem with this particular batch of vaccine, if, if there is a problem. We don't know for sure if it was the, the vaccine, it could have just been a cluster of cases that are extremely rare to have happened that put the finger on that, on that uh, batch of vaccine. But, um, you know, I think it's a combination for, you have patient privacy, you can't ask a patient to spend the time and, and go through their history, but, but uh, certainly they can be asked if they're willing. And a combination of analyzing the, the vaccine and, and talking to the patients uh, might teach us a lot. And it is common. In fact, it is expected for people to have some kind of reaction to this vaccine. Isn't that right? Well, yes. Uh, but, but this is a, a very a specific type of reaction that, that is uh, medically uh, threatening. So many people will experience pain at the site. And as the immune system reacts, uh, some will expect more more pain or swelling or redness, but this is not an allergic reaction. Um, the allergic reaction is, is mediated by a class of antibodies uh, called IgE. And you know many people don't make many these kind of antibodies and some people make lots of them to lots of different things, <laughs> which means, and, and what they do is they, they, they go to specialized immune cells called mast cells and basophils. And those antibodies just sit there on, on those cells waiting for an allergen to come along. And when it does, it activates that cell to release all kinds of nasty contents that, that uh, cause in mild cases, you know, sniffling and headaches and nasal congestion, but in severe cases, anaphylaxis with all organs and 
uh, being affected with uh, uh, you know, very severe consequences. And so this is the thing that we're concerned about, not the type of side effects that most people would experience. And is there any tests that can be done beforehand to find out if people might be allergic to these COVID vaccines? Well, you know, I, I've, I've gone recently to uh, one of the vaccine, vaccine sites, um, the, the Petco. In fact, that's where the, where the problem was. And uh, they asked me questions right up front. You know, do you have allergies? Have you ever had anaphylaxis? Um, have you ever used an EpiPen? So these are sort of very clear, direct questions um, that are the screening nature. And I had another colleague who went to the same site uh, and she has very, very severe allergies to at least 20 different things. So she's a prime candidate you know, to be worried about <laughs> any allergic material. And she was screened and she was, um, she answered yes, yes, yes to all of these questions. And they immediately put her in a different line. They have a different line set up for people with allergic, uh, with allergies and the potential to undergo this anaphylaxis. And so uh, she was greatly relieved because she really wanted to get the, the vaccine. She got the vaccine and she had no problem at all. So here's a case of a very severely allergic person that had no problem. And the reason is that she wasn't allergic to whatever the components were in the vaccine. You'd have to have had some pre-exposure and be allergic already <laughs> when you go to get your vaccination. So I think these screening questions are critical. And the more we know about, uh, about the potential allergies for the Moderna vaccine, they can make their questions a little bit more specific um, and, and flag people that might have had exposure that would need to go into that special line. Well, this has really been some very useful information. I want to thank you very much, James Paulson, Professor and Chair of the Department of Molecular Medicine at the Scripps Research Institute. Thanks very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. More than a dozen states have called up the National Guard to try to speed up the pace of COVID-19 vaccinations. And President-elect Biden may mobilize the Guard nationally. Jay Price of the American Homefront Project visited a vaccination site in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, where the troops are already making a difference. This high school parking lot has been transformed into kind of a vaccine freeway. Four lines of cars creep towards teams of guard soldiers working shoulder to shoulder with health department nurses. Michael Barcliffe, a behavioral coach for the local school system, rolls to a stop and kills his engine as Major Hollis Gunther walks up. Hi, sir. So this is an information card for you to keep. I'm going to let you fill out your information up here. Today, you're going to get the Moderna vaccination, okay. which uh, basically means in a month, you're going to want to get the Moderna booster shot. Okay. Barcliffe said he had some initial reservations about the vaccine, but educated himself on it. I've been, you know, kind of watching other people, talking to different people, and so I feel very confident in it today. 
After Gunther has finished giving him instructions about the vaccine, Barcliff pulls forward a few feet, where Tech Sergeant Stephen Simpson is waiting with a hypodermic needle. All right, I'm going to go ahead and administer this vaccine. A slight pinch. You're done. All right. Not so bad, huh? No. Nah. Gunther said as an emergency room nurse practitioner in his civilian life, he's worn down from the pandemic, sick of seeing people suffering and dying from it. But helping out with the vaccine effort has given him a lift. It's almost like being on the offensive for a change. You know, working in emergency departments has just been a beating over the last, honestly, year. And so now just trying to get up ahead of this infection, you know, get the world back to eating out again and seeing grandma and you know, not going to funerals. As guard troops work with health department nurses, vaccinating drivers and passengers, other soldiers across town are processing the paperwork for each appointment. The director of Albemarle Regional Health Service, Battle Betts, says it was a huge relief for his small staff to get the guards help. Their training, their background, this is perfectly in their wheelhouse. And so it is helping tremendously to pull a lot more people through the lines in a much more efficient process. His organization is responsible for eight counties. The smaller ones each have just two nurses who can do vaccinations on top of their other work. Already worn down from nearly a year of fighting the pandemic, they face a daunting challenge, vaccinating a population of 160,000 people twice. You're really talking about 320,000 immunizations because you've got to get all those folks back for that second dose. These clinics are part of the largest immunization effort in U.S. history and come after a year that saw the most guard troops activated nationally since World War II. And like the health department nurses, the guard has had to cope with pandemic duty while also covering its normal missions. At one point in time, we had almost a 1,000 soldiers that we called up, and we knew that's not sustainable forever, you know, because of the pandemic. And then you know, National Guardsmen and Airmen also have civilian jobs. Major General Todd Hunt is the Adjutant General of the North Carolina National Guard. He says that while duty for things like hurricane recovery typically lasts a few days, the pandemic is a long effort. So instead of ordering people to duty, the Guard called for volunteers. And we put them on orders for a specific amount of time based upon you know their needs and our needs as well. So we've had to uh, adapt in how we do military business to take care of our soldiers and airmen and also the people that are out there that we're supporting. It's a busy time for the North Carolina Guard. Besides those activated for the pandemic, hundreds more were called up to Washington, D.C. and the state capitol because of potential civil unrest. That duty is expected to be brief, unlike the pandemic. I'm Jay Price reporting. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. 
Antonio Lay went from being one of Tijuana's most well-known boosters to being a vocal critic who doesn't shy away from pointing out Tijuana's problems. KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, continues its series of cross-border love stories with a new episode about falling in and out of love with TJ and a common existential crisis that can happen when you live at the border. Better known as Tony T, the former party promoter took the Port of Entry podcast crew with him on his daily cross-border commute back in 2019. Along the way, host Alan Lilienthal, producer Kinsey Moreland, and sound designer Emily Jankowski walked through the border with Tony T as he explained some of the city's issues and the personal life changes triggering his existential crisis and change of heart. So we were on a city bus going from downtown Tijuana to Pedo West. That's the newest pedestrian crossing at the San Isidro port of entry. And Tony started to take us deeper inside his current existential conundrum. Are you still as enthusiastic about Tijuana? I, I want to be. I want to be. I live here. I want the city. The city's, you know, we've got such a perfect neighbor with such a pretty house. And our house will never be that pretty. But you can sweep the sidewalk in front of the house, right? Rather than sweep the sidewalk, though, a lot of proud Tijuanenses instead tend to sweep the city's problems under the rug. But Tony, he started using Facebook as a platform to put the problems on blast. And instead of posting about cool parties or great food in Tijuana like he used to, these days he's mostly posting about the killings and the chaos. And some of his friends, they're not his friends anymore because of it. Now that I criticize local government about violence and insecurity and trash and everything that's criticizable here to make it like the standard of living be better for everybody and not those people that I knew and grew up with, where the privileged few of this town, uh, but they didn't like me so much anymore, those people. And I'm not trying to tell people, hey, don't go eat in Tijuana anymore, or don't drink craft beer in Tijuana. What I'm trying to say is, look what's happening in the city we live, that had calmed down, remember cuando se calmó? Ah, ya está bien todos. It calmed down, 2010, 2011, it chilled out. Ya se calmó. Oh, fast forward six, seven years. The worst numbers in the history of the city. Just so you know, before 2016, the most violent year in Tijuana was 800 murders 2008. It tripled that last year, brother. There was more than 2,400 murders. What happened? What happened to the city we love and take care of so much? Or is it only for the people that could buy a Caesar salad and a craft beer? Is that what we're really only worried for collectively as a city? We're not worried about the people getting smoked every day? We're gonna brush them under the rug? I am human, I have a heart. I don't like seeing that. And I don't like seeing rich Tijuanenses Sons of privileged people going, they're just killing junkies anyway, bro. Oh, f- you, man. F- you, dude. Like, I don't like it, especially when they say it, because they've gotten so much from the city. And they're probably saying it from their apartment in North Park, you know what I mean? So, f- them two times. The bus drove over a hill, and the border crossing popped into view. Check the border. 
No line, no line. Look at that. No line on the bridge. Then the bus drove across a bridge that stretches over the notorious Tijuana River, which is really more of a polluted cement canal filled with makeshift homes for the city's most destitute. And Tony, he got triggered. Because right here in this place, the difference between the two sides of the border just could not be any starker. We're seeing what I call a microcosm of all the problems in Tijuana, which is the river, the Tijuana River, uh, and the canal, the channel that was built here. It separates uh, Zona Norte, a place of drugs and prostitution, from the outlet center. The H&M is right there visible, a place of uh, crazy capitalism. And I get to see what both cities have to offer every day when I cross the border. This place, if you've read, and this is a place of deportees, this is a place of drug use, this is where people land when times are tough, they live down there under those, and they're living on the bridge on top of there, you can see them there, you see that overpass, and you see the homeless people living on that bridge up there. So this is a lot of part where the the deportees come, some of the refugees came here, the migrant caravan, when they did that rush, they bum-rushed the border, it was through here. The wall, the neighbors are friendly, they have a lot of barbed wire, and uh, and then again here, the prostitution, trash, violence, and then H&M in America. So every day, this is what I see. Young Tony, he saw this stuff too, but he didn't let it bother him. These days, it bothers him a lot. We get off here. Okay, sale. The bus dropped us off just a few feet from where we needed to go to cross into the U.S. We are under a bridge that we just crossed in the bus. This is uh, the Ped West crossing, and uh, it's a pedestrian crossing. We're going to go to the United States like 100,000 people do every day from here, and we're going to become the workforce of uh, America's finest city. It's shocking here sometimes because there is... Everything to do with refugee crisis is here. So they give the appointments here to get asylum. Asylum appointments are given here. So there'll be a lot of people here. A lot of them are uh, Haitian or straight up African. And then not so many Central American lately. Now you'll see mostly black people and occasional Central Americans and even Mexicans, of course, because people are escaping horrible shit in Mexico too, by the way. That, by the way, was all before the entire asylum system essentially shut down during the pandemic. Now it's even worse. Tony's walk through the heart of the migrant crisis, his bus ride over the poverty-filled river, it makes sense that he's feeling the way he feels, struggling to love Tijuana the way he used to when he was younger. Next, we hustled to get ourselves into the borderline before it got any longer. Now I'm border walking. Ain't no time. Ain't no time for a podcast, Kinsey. We need to beat the crowds. Look at that. They're coming. Right before we stepped into the line, though, we passed a newsstand. Tony stopped to buy a copy of the newspaper, Seta. And the headline that day was about 15 people killed in the city the night before. And I saw it. Disappointment and deep sadness wash across Tony's face. I could see exactly how defeated he was feeling. I don't think that violence in Tijuana gets enough press 
or sympathy from anyone because it's happening to groups of people that are marginalized and, and no one hears a damn thing about it ever. I think that for things to change, there has to be public outcry, and I don't see the public outcry. Why aren't people upset about this? Why aren't people upset about this? I don't know, man. That was Tony T. and Alan Lilienthal in an excerpt from KPBS's Border Podcast, Port of Entry. Hear the full episode online at portofentrypod.org or get a Port of Entry wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on KPBS Evening Edition at 5 on KPBS Television, a report on training different kinds of medical workers to give COVID vaccinations. And join us again tomorrow for KPBS Midday Edition at noon. If you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on your favorite podcast app. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman, and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.